0: To the Her Story Speaks podcast, I'm your host, Andrea, and my guest today is a woman who has devoted her life to healing, equipping, empowering, and mobilizing people to seek racial justice. In this episode, Gigi Cognezzi shares her story of growing up in East Oakland, California, and her experience of living 30 years in the United States as a Latina woman of color activist. But perhaps the most defining chapter of Gigi's story is when she relocated to Soweto, South Africa, where she lived for 10 years. As Gigi planted herself in the most racially polarized country in the world, she suddenly found herself considered white. It was the greatest identity crisis of her life, but it also propelled her passion forward as she wrestled deeply with how to be a true neighbor, an agent of healing, and a catalyst for justice. Today, Gigi is the founder and director of Jesus and Justice, where she's a writer, facilitator, anti-racist coach, artist, activist, and speaker. She has had years of training in the mental health field, and one of her great passions is facilitating the healing of deep-seated wounds, particularly racial trauma. She received her Master's of Divinity with an emphasis in intercultural ministry and her B.A. in sociology and African American studies, and she's currently a doctoral student at Howard University. As you can imagine, Gigi's story is not one that can be summed up in an hour podcast. So this episode is lengthier than most. We cover some hard topics like white saviorism, racial reconciliation versus justice, cross cultural adoption, and several more. I encourage you to listen in for the entire conversation and lean in as Gigi shares her story.
1: Gigi, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be with you and your listeners today.
0: Well, I feel honored to talk to you. I've known you just through social media and followed you and learned things from you. And we've had a, a phone conversation before and Your story is just one I've wanted to tell for a while. So I'm really just thankful and grateful that you're here today to share it. Yeah, it's a privilege, truly. So let's start out, before we dive into your story, just tell me about your day-to-day life, where you live, what you do. You're a single mom, so you have got your hands full. Yeah,
1: the primary, I would say, defining factor in my day-to-day life currently is I am a single mom in a pandemic, hello somebody, with two uh, extraordinary little humans who are both adopted from my time in South Africa, Um, extraordinary walking miracles who also happen to be racialized as black and both have um, some level of of special needs as they're kind of labeled. And both are two of the most resilient little souls that I have ever encountered. So my life really revolves a lot around them and the joy that we have of of being a family and uh, their medical needs and therapeutic needs and the joys and the challenges of of being a single parent, particularly in this era. Um, and then I have an organization that was birthed out of my, um, passion and lifelong devotion for justice and particularly the call of the gospel to racial justice. It's called Jesus and justice. So it's very, um, it's centered around the person of Jesus and the gospel. Um, and then it's really centered around people. Um, so I would say those are the two biggest things that are, um, coloring my daily life. I'm also an artist. So I'm a dancer and a vocalist and a musician and poet. Um, some of those things have had to really take a backseat in the pandemic, particularly dancing. But they are things that um, I'm—they're a, a huge part of who I am.
0: Yeah, and you're also in school full time right now too, right? Yeah, part time.
1: whatever. Yeah, full time doctoral student at uh, Howard University School of Divinity with an emphasis. I have an interdisciplinary emphasis around healing intergenerational collective racial trauma and then um, kind of merging that with theology um, and also with uh, resolving intergenerational racial bias in the white community.
0: Yes. So to say that you have a full play is an understatement, really, (laughs) like, goodness gracious. Okay. And going back to what you said about Jesus and justice and the class and your passion, that is what first drew me to you and why you're somebody that I listen to and learn from and why your story and voice is so important that we'll hear today. So let's start out. With your origin story because i know that had to drive your passion for jesus and justice so i'm so curious just to hear you can start back as far as you want or a certain point in your childhood but you just take it where you feel comfortable starting with your origin story
1: yeah thank you um it's it's actually a joy to connect my origin story with who i am today Um, So it really starts with my parents. Before I was born, my dad immigrated from Brazil. He's from São Paulo, Brazil. He immigrated as a late teenager, not speaking a lick of English. And then my mother, in some stranger form, is, is also an immigrant, but from the Amish community. Interesting. So she was born and raised Amish, um, starting out in Arthur, Illinois, a tiny, exclusively Amish town. She eventually left the Amish community and years later relocated to California. And my dad had volunteered as a Brazilian citizen um, and a permanent resident in the U.S. He was not drafted. So he volunteered to fight in the Vietnam War um, as a corpsman, a medic. And when he came back to the United States, um, they were working at a hospital together. So they met. Um, So I'm half Brazilian, half Amish, which racially is white. And I was raised, most of my childhood was in East Oakland, a um, diverse, there was some diversity, but predominantly Black community in East Oakland, which um, has had a huge impact on who I have grown to be. So I was born literally 10 years after the Black Panther Party first started, which was not, which was started not too far from where I grew up. So as I grew up, it was very much in, in the shadow in a good sense in the shadow of and the care really of the black panther party and their presence in the community and not growing up specifically with the influence of a christian home i was deeply introduced to social dynamics racial dynamics Poverty and everything that comes along with all of that intersectionality, having grown up in that community. So by the time I was like 10 or 11, I was already very passionate and in some ways pretty outspoken um, about social dynamics and particularly around race. And then at 12 years old, a number of, of very significant things happened. Number one, I met Jesus for the first time at a summer camp up in the mountains. So I was growing up in, uh, in some ways, kind of the concrete jungle of inner city Oakland, and then went for a week up to the mountains and was introduced to the Jesus that I fell in love with. A couple weeks later, um, my family split up, and my mother moved me to my brother and my dad stayed in Oakland. My mother moved me to only 12 miles away, a place called Castro Valley but it was like night and day. It was at the time, it's different now, but at the time it was uh, more than 90% white. Um, and my first few years, I, I continued going to school in Oakland. So my, my most of my life was in Oakland, but I resided in Castro Valley. In that following year at 13, I watched Mandela be released from prison on TV. And I didn't know who he was. Now, mind you, at this age, growing up in Oakland public schools, um, I I already had a working knowledge of the civil rights movement and because of my passion, I had already been doing my own reading and my own research. Um, And when I asked my mother, who is that and why is he so important? I got this five minute explanation of the apartheid system. And when I tell you my 12 year old going on 22 because of where I was growing up, mind was totally blown. I, I could not fathom that somewhere in the world, this was happening today. Partly because in my mind, that civil rights movement was in the 60s. How can that be 1991? How, that, mm-hmm. And what impacted me, I think, most deeply was realizing within minutes that if that system was happening here, I would be legally forbidden from living in my community, my community yeah. that raised me as yeah. much as or in some ways even more so than my own family did. You're
0: People 12, came- did you, and this just was profoundly shocking to you. Did you voice that to your mom or did you just kind of internalize this as like, wow, this is a lot.
1: Yeah. In the moment I was so shocked. I don't think I said anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot, especially for a 12 year old. Yeah. I think I was taking it in. I was chewing it, digesting it. um, But in a place of shock, how can this be happening? And it went to this community is my family. This is my family. How can you tell me that they're not my family because our skin color is different? Yeah, um, And so that was my introduction to the apartheid system. It was my introduction to South Africa as a nation, actually, um, uh-huh. which then came much more prominently into my story a little bit later. Um, but then the following year, living in Castro Valley, um, I started school at the local high school. So I had been still in school in Oakland Public Schools all the way through junior high. And when I started high school in Castro Valley, now I was not only living in the community, but I was also going to school in the community. Okay. 2,000 students, um, rough estimate about um, 98% white. Um, what I didn't know until about the second month of school was that it was full of the KKK. And that's the fact that the school had a significant contingent directly involved in the KKK was actually representative of the community that I was now living in. And the way that I discovered it is that I was an athlete in high school. um, And so I came to school early for zero period, uh, which means that our team showed up earlier than most. And we showed up at the crack of dawn, the sun was just coming up. And I will never forget walking up to the gym Um, And as the sun was coming up, the the sunlight, sunrise light was shining on the top of the gym. And right in that light, it said in big spray-painted, enormous red letters, KKK. And it was spray-painted all over the school. That's how I found out. Um, And that was the introduction to four years of living there and going to school there and then spending every waking moment that I could back in Oakland where I was at home. Um, but the what it I'm
0: curious. So, when you were in Oakland, predominantly black, and how are you identifying because you are multi ethnic? So, did you find I guess you know, I mentioned you reading Chandra, Chandra's book this week, Mixed Blessing, and having yeah. her on. She talks a lot about um, just the loneliness, the isolation, the cold code switching. Like, I just can't imagine how, how that was for your 12 year old self going from one of those cultures right to the other, and you also having both in your body. So do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's such an important part of really the development of of my story Mm -hmm. is that I'm I'm half Latina and I'm half white, Amish, right? But I'm growing up in an environment that's predominantly black. But here's the thing, race, race only exists based on your physical appearance. And our physical appearance is only an can be an indicator of our ethnic biological identity but race as a construct only exists based on your physical appearance right so my physical appearance is one that has typically been identified by the united states world as latina as brown Um, in fact most often has just been as something other the most common question i've been asked my entire life from the time i was like 5 Strangers will walk up to me in the street and say, "I'm sorry, but I just have to ask you, what are you? What are you?" <laughs> They'll say things like, "You, you look kind of exotic. Like maybe you might be Filipino or Hawaiian, or like, do you have, you know, my my physical physique mm-hmm. is is very clearly of African descent. So mm-hmm. um, there's that. But then I have this light. In college, they call me Hazelnut. My best friend was Mocha. So. I have this lighter complexion i have this thick wavy hair that is very trademark of brazilian descent but but also keep in mind brazil as a nation has the most the highest population of people of african descent than anywhere in the world other than the continent of africa itself
0: interesting so i've got
1: all of that wrapped up in my body while culturally if i had to say what had the biggest cultural influence it would be the black community yeah I mean, in terms of my mannerisms, my sense of humor, my, a lot of my values, really, it came from there mm-hmm. more than anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this mixed heritage um, identity, which um, is really difficult to solidify as an, identi- as an identity. So I'm, I'm brown enough to be heckled and to be marginalized um, and to be discredited and dismissed. And I'm a woman at the time, a girl, um, but then I'm white enough, though, yeah. to not receive the same level of brutality that my Black neighbors did. Um, so walking this fine line of marginalized and colonized, and at the same time, still an ally, still a co-conspirator, yeah. Um, yeah. standing for, for my brothers and sisters, who who's brutalizing uh, will nine times out of ten be much worse than mine.
0: I just, I appreciate you sharing that part of it, because I... I admittedly have been somewhat oblivious to that. I mean, reading her book has opened my eyes just to how complicated that is when you're carrying so many ethnicities in your body. And she talks about something of like, you have the ability to just offend all groups because you don't just squarely fit in these boxes. So I I see that playing out, knowing the rest more of your story, how that's playing out. Um, So I was curious at that age. So you're now in the white school, which like you said, your skin is lighter so did you feel like you tried to assimilate or were you using your voice like take us back where you were with the kkk you saw that what happened next
1: yeah yeah well the the one of the interesting dynamics about being biracial or multiracial is that in some areas you can find home everywhere or or yeah. multiple places and in other ways you find home nowhere mm-hmm. you're not fully accepted not fully rejected Um, Or sometimes you're fully rejected or for moments fully accepted, Um, but it's not a fluid experience, right? So entering into this new space, initially, I didn't know where I had landed. I didn't know what this place was. And this is, is, you know, I'm dating myself here, but this is pre-internet. Same. I'm with you. Right. Pre-internet, so I didn't know the space that I landed. I was I was uh, 14 now at the time, um, and so I'm confronted with this KKK. Um, and of course, the the very f- the, the second day of school, this was my introduction to the space wow. I had landed. The second day of school, I'm a brand new freshman. Almost all the 2,000 students had come in from one of three different junior highs in the area, so most people knew each other. I didn't know anybody, and I was brown, and I came from Oakland. Second day of school, the senior girl comes up to me, and um, and she said, "You know, I, I'm feeling like a fish totally out of water. I'm just lost." Right. And she comes up to me and she says, I heard you're from Oakland. Inside of my body, I got so excited for someone to say the name yeah. of the place that is home to recognize. And so, with a huge smile, I'm like, Yes, I am. And the next words out of her mouth literally were, I don't know how you lived there. There are so many black people there. I bet you had to carry a gun, didn't you? Did you have to carry a gun just to survive? And there are so many drugs. And she just went down this list of all the stereotypes that circulate right um and in inside of me i thought she was kidding at first so i laughed i i couldn't fathom that what i was hearing was actually her truth and the shock of that that the total lostness with what i had just encountered and in oakland even though my neighborhood was predominantly black as a brown girl who was growing up in the community i was really embraced as one of us yeah I was one of us. They, I, they were, the community was my family. Yeah. Um, and so coming here and hearing Oakland spoken of like that and how many times over the next four years I was asked, um, you know, I heard you're from Oakland and my response is yes. And almost without fail, the response is, I'm sorry. And the response wow. that I learned to offer was, I'm not. And I proceed to explain to them why I'm not sorry.
0: So did that experience, did it make your voice louder or quieter?
1: That is such an important question. The first two years, purely out of pubescent survival, quiet, quieter, quieter. Sure. not totally quiet, but quieter. Sure. Um, and I still spent my free time back in Oakland, but being an athlete and being in school and living in this community, predominantly, I w- my time was here. Um, for the first two years, it made my voice quieter um, because my, this is where I was now planted and I, I, had, to, I had to survive.
0: Right? That's what I was going to say. It came down to survival, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, It definitely did. And there was a very clear turning point. I was 16. It was the end of my sophomore year, middle of May, um, 1996. And um, one of my very dear friends um, was murdered in the first homicide in Little League history. Mm-hmm. And his murder was direct result of racial taunting. It was a direct result of the presence and the embedding of white supremacy in our community. <clears throat> now, as, as an athlete, as a Brown young woman, um, with the body of, um, Afro-Brazilian young woman, um, I, pretty much every home game that we played, we played in spandex. Hello, somebody volleyball. Um, mm, yeah. <laughs> there was constant heckling about my body, um, and commentary around, uh, what I, affectionately okay. call my brazilian hind parts uh-huh. um, which are disproportionately prominent <laughs> um there was constant heckling it wasn't until after joseph's death his name is joseph matucci that and i didn't realize this until literally a, a few decades later that my body understood something after his death that my brain couldn't gather the pieces yet and what my body understood was that the line between the heckling in the volleyball stands of my African, Afro-Brazilian hind mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and the racial taunting from the stands at that baseball game that killed him, the line between them is very thin. Yeah. It's very yeah. thin. Yeah. Um, but the story didn't end with his death, unfortunately. Um, he was hit in the head with a baseball bat. He was not involved in what happened at all, but he was a... St- an innocent uh, bystander. Um, and when he was hit in the head with a baseball bat, the young man who hit him took off running into outfield. Joseph's best friend was the pitcher, hurled a stone to try and get him to stop running and hit him in the head. He collapsed unconscious in outfield. 911 was called, and when they show up, showed up, they saw him first. So they took him to the hospital, not realizing that Joseph was there. Um, so it was 40 minutes before Joseph was taken to the hospital and he he died um, two days later. But the, the it was the umpire who actually identified the player who hit him in the head with the bat. And that news got leaked into all the KKK circles and some of the prominent KKK leaders, their sons were on the baseball team that instigated this whole incident. Um, wow. And so that umpire had attacks on his family. There was a brick thrown through his window with threats um, that if he testified, he was going to die. Um, it was like I was living in an alternate universe. It, it was like in my mind at 16, I was living in you know 1967 um, that I could not fathom. And that is what shook me so much that I put a very distinct emotional and social distance between... Um, myself, and people who had been friends at my school, um, and my voice rose. Okay. Especially, it first showed up in my writing, writing papers in school.
0: Okay, so this was obviously still in high school, so you started using your voice more, speaking up. How did your faith, tell me a little about uh, your faith journey with that time, because I know you said when you were 12, you met Jesus. Now, once you're really encountering these harsh realities, how did that affect your relationship with Jesus? Did it get stronger, weaker during this time? Do you start questioning?
1: Yeah. So my initial first few years of being a believer, part of the reason that I believe my relationship with the Lord has been so rock solid, unmoving is because those first few years of knowing him were so hard. I had just been moved to a new place. I had lost my my family units. My brother, who's only 18 months older than me, we were separated um, and so my mother often worked nights. And so sometimes I wouldn't see her for days at a time. I remember laying, I had a, mat- a mattress laying on the floor. It wasn't a bed. It was just a mattress on the floor. And I remember, um, many, many times for months, probably for, for the first two years, um, at night alone in my house, in this place that's infested with the KKK by myself with my Bible that my church in Oakland had given me reading the Psalms, memorizing the Psalms and weeping because I felt like I had no one, particularly in this community now. Um, And the people that I did have my community felt so far away. And this is before cell phones too. So there was no texting. There was no, for me, there was no email. um, So the the distance was much more pronounced than it would be today. Um, So it was this sense of Jesus is what I have to hang on to. And the more I studied, the more I read God's word, um, the more alive it became. And the more I just started to get a glimpse of the person of of Jesus and seeing that so many of my own circumstances and things that I was living or had lived, I was seeing in the pages of scripture, but then I wasn't hearing it in the teaching of scripture. And I couldn't reconcile the disconnect between the two. And that is part of what fueled my intense hunger for God's word and to understand God's word. But what I knew that I knew that I knew was that this Jesus, who was clearly on the underside, he knew my story, yeah, not just in a spiritual great. sense, but he, in, in some sense, he lived it. He lived mm, the underside. So good. Yes. He lived the underside. Um, and so that's really where my faith was birthed. And then getting involved in our, our high school group um, throughout high school, it's, it's really, it's part of what kept me alive. Um, it's when my, my first trips overseas, so every, every single year from 14 years old until 24, I went to Mexico for, and served among, usually in small pueblos, um, struggling through poverty many times at uh, children's homes with kids who don't have families. Um, and so my, my worldview was developing, my faith in my worldview was developing with the backdrop of my birthing place being Oakland, you know, like yes. Jesus birthing place was Nazareth, my birthing pl- you know, what good thing could come from Nazareth is what they said about him. Yes. How many times I have had people say to me, Oh, you're from Oakland. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I wonder if Jesus right. said that now. Right. I'm not sorry for Nazareth. No, no. Right. right. So my faith and my worldview was being crystallized and pieces coming together with the backdrop of Oakland being my birthing place. And yet, growing and developing, um, in some ways in my body, mm-hmm. in this place riddled with the KKK who hated my body. Mm-hmm. And so without realizing it, there was this politic of body and this theology of body that was forming in me, but I didn't have language for it yet. Right. Right. Um, and when Joseph was murdered, um, it was an immediate crisis on, on many levels. Um, but funny enough, it was not a crisis of faith. Mm. It was not a crisis of faith. And I think part of that is because although I didn't have the language to express it at the time, um, I knew in my gut that the Jesus that loves me and chose me was the Jesus of the underside. That's, that's, that's so good. So Jesus of the least of these. That's right. That's
0: right. So, huh. I, I can't even i don't I've, you've lost me from words a little bit because that's so powerful i mean you saw jesus in your story and your stories and jesus's and i think that is what um is just so wonderful and powerful when we hear other stories other women's stories other people's stories because we can see jesus in it when we look and you graduate from high school so you've got this passion you've learned of nelson mandela you've experienced the kkk you've experienced white supremacy, all of this. So after high school, what do you do with that? Because I know the next part of your story, you spend 10 years in South Africa, but I don't know if there's stuff in the middle that I'm skipping over that got you there. So share what you want, or if you're ready to plant yourself in South Africa, um, you just take it from where you think is important.
1: Yeah, I'll give you a a brief glimpse of the Um, in-between. So from the time I graduated high school to the time I relocated to South Africa was actually about 12 years. Okay. Over 13 years. So when I went to college, also as an athlete, I was playing volleyball at UC Davis. Um, okay. I knew by the time I graduated, I knew that I knew that I knew that I was called to, at the time I called it reconciliation, racial okay. reconciliation. I okay. don't use that term anymore, okay. um, which I can talk more about a little yeah, bit later. Yeah, I
0: do want to know that.
1: Um, yeah, I don't use that term anymore, not as it relates to race. Okay. Um, that is not the goal that we're working towards. Um, okay. At the time, that's what I called it. And I, I knew that I was made for it. I, I knew that that looking like I looked posed unique challenges, but it also posed unique benefits. And my life experience, having lived in Oakland, having lived among the KKK, um, that I knew how to exist among people of color, particularly the black community that was home. And I knew how to exist among the white community. Um, And really my mission at the time was not just as an advocate for justice, but it was really to bring the two together, um, particularly fueled by the gospel or my understanding of it at the time. Um, So just in brief, I found myself through all four years of college on one hand um, on leadership for a a student Christian organization, and at the same time singing in the UC Davis Gospel Choir, which was entirely black except for two of us. Okay. Um, and they both, in some sense, were home for me. In some sense, both were home. But the gospel choir, it, it held much more of who I am than the white Christian organ- student organization ever could. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I had very tight relationships in both. And so I spent four years intentionally trying to bring the two together and intentionally trying to disciple younger students in a way that says, the gospel calls us to this. Yeah. It's not a suggestion the gospel calls us to this. And then at the same time, advocating for the justice part of it, right? Which reconciliation takes out the justice part of it. Um, at least the the narrative of reconciliation that has been presented to us. We'll in- talk about
0: that just a little bit. And so I don't want to forget and not come back to that. So talk about that just a little bit. Why, in a really, in a nutshell, why, justice is taken out of reconciliation, how it's looked at right now and why you don't use that term, because it's still widely used right now. Yes.
1: Yes. Particularly in faith communities, particularly mm-hmm. in, in Christ following communities. Um, so reconciliation, the, the narrative that is that has been created, that is most widely circulating. Um, the the I'll talk about the feeling first and then the actual definition, right? So the feeling that comes with it in faith communities when we talk about reconciliation is kind of um, this feeling of two offended parties come to the table, have some hard dialogue and apologies get said probably on both sides. Some that are more progressive might even say more apologies should be from the white folks, right? But then... Forgiveness is asked, forgiveness is given, and we walk away holding hands, and then we're reconciled, and right. Jesus inspires it all. Right, right. <laughs> Here is the, the main problem with that, is that um, to reconcile means that you are repairing something that was once intact and got broken. Mm, that's good. But race in this country was never intact. There was never harmony. And when I say harmony, in my mind, I'm thinking back to Genesis 1. That is our picture of shalom, right? Um, We started in harmony. Sin entered the picture. Harmony got broken, right? Um, So when you talk about, and now I'm getting into reconciliation as definition, as meaning. When you talk about reconciliation as a theological concept, because it was first a theological term before it was ever a sociological term. So the theological term of reconciliation, it applies when you're talking about going back to Genesis 1 what Jesus did in giving his life was to reconcile us to the father because we started out in harmony. In this nation, there was no starting in harmony. There was domination. There was brutalization. There was savagery. There was the stealing and thievery of land and there was the stealing and thievery of bodies. And then there was the exploitation of those bodies to build wealth on the backs of those broken bodies. So there was never a foundation of harmony to reconcile, okay, we have to consile. We have to conciliate okay. first, okay, okay. before so we can ever re.
0: I appreciate that a lot because I knew that term was not as widely used, and I honestly didn't know exactly why. So that totally gives me a great understanding of it. So, what is the term that you would use right now of what we're striving towards, or should be yeah. working towards?
1: So, for me, it's it's a combination of racial justice. Okay. So, so justice says not only do we hope that we can come together relationally, the hope, but inherent in the very definition is what was wronged has to be made right. Right. First. Okay. okay. There is no reconciliation without an yes. acknowledging of the wrongs, a repentance and asking of forgiveness, but it can't stop there though. Yeah. It can't stop there. It has to be, we seek to make wrong what was We seek to make right Right. what was made wrong. So what has been stolen, we restore, we give back. Okay. Okay. The systems that were created at the foundation of this nation, and this gets into our understanding of anti-Blackness, is that most of us don't understand what people mean when they say anti-Blackness. It is not an emotional sentiment anti-Blackness. I mean, it can be, but that's not what we mean when we say it as as Black, Indigenous, and people of color. What it's referring to is the fact that this nation was birthed in a death dealing hierarchy. And the very foundations and systems of our nation were built to make sure that people of African and Indigenous descent will always stay on the bottom. And many of those systems are still in place today. Oh, absolutely.
0: I mean, we're seeing it play out. As a
1: exactly. as last,
0: this time last week which if we have time at the end I want to talk about present day current event stuff with you a Absolutely. little bit yeah I, de- I derailed the conversation a little bit but I think that that is really important that we don't forget to talk about those terms and what reconciliation justice all of those things so back up just a little bit you're in college you are in these two groups you're pursuing justice um and then where does that take you next in your story?
1: Yeah, I think by the end, I realized, um, again, I didn't have yet the language to articulate it, but right. I realized by the end that there came a complete breakdown with the white student organization. And it's because I preached a two-part series in the large group on the call of the gospel to racial reconciliation. Again, that's the term I used then. And it so you caused... preached
0: this back in college to this group? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: Yep. You and did not, it,
0: your voice was getting stronger. <laughs>
1: yes. Oh, in college, it was loud and out there. Yeah. Perfect. Um, yeah. And in my discipling, really, it started in, in behind closed doors, really in the discipling of people. And then when I w- had invitations to speak publicly, then it came out very clearly. And that's how I knew this is, this is what I was made for, which is why I studied sociology and African and African-American studies for exactly this reason. Okay. Um, okay. But when I watched what caused the breakdown of relationships in the white Christian organization. It was, it was a breaking point for me. I mean that in a, it was, a, it was very traumatic. Okay. It was very traumatic. And yet it was the launching point for, in some ways, the rest of my life. Um, because it was the first time I realized that no amount of saying the truth over and over and over and over is going to open the eyes of someone who doesn't want their eyes opened. And when wow. that is most painful and most traumatic, is when it's in a quote unquote Christian environment, um, claiming to follow the same Christ. That is when it can be really traumatic. So post-college, um, I spent a couple years working with severely autistic children, which I loved. Um, I had my first stint in full-time ministry, which I also absolutely loved had the freedom to incorporate justice and race in the in my discipling of students and and as I'm going through this and my my voice and my conviction is really crystallizing around the call of the gospel to justice. I realize that um, my passion for God's word and my passion to be able to to borrow the term rightly divide God's word with a specific focus on its call to justice. I need to actually formally study. I want to actually formally study. So I ended up um, relocating to Colorado and going to seminary. The seminary that I went to was and is um, a, although it's, it's interdenominational, which is something I loved about it. Back when I was there, still very much predominantly white, predominantly pretty conservative. And also during this, during these years was my introduction to the mental health field. And this, this is a very significant part of my journey working in the mental health field um, and my passion for mental health and emotional health, and particularly the impact of trauma. And so when I enter seminary, I actually, I chose this seminary specifically because it has the best, it had the best uh, clinical counseling program in the nation in, in a seminary. And then I got into the theology classes And I, I just would salivate. I'd be in class for two, three hours and I'd be like, please don't stop. You know, just wanting to dive into God's word, recognizing that it was coming to me from a distinctly white and privileged perspective. I knew that. And like liberation theology was kind of my side hustle because people of color, authors of color, theologians of color were, um, I think, if I can remember correctly, only two classes ever in an entire master's of divinity program assigned reading that had theologians of color so i assigned them to myself mm, <laughs> but my point in saying that is that i recognized that what i was being taught was coming from a white privileged perspective and so some things i was able to sift out and apply and reapply uh-huh. to my context and where i wanted to be in ministry in the long term but there there were very prominent ways of course this is in hindsight now many years later that I, I did not realize how embedded yeah. um, that yeah. ideology was in what, what I was digesting. It was once I transferred to the MDiv program, I was without fail, one of the only, sometimes the only women in the class. So you have the intersectionality of, of race, of being brown and being a woman and having the deep conviction that I'm not just going to pass through this place. I'm actually, I want to leave a mark for the gospel, which is a gospel that includes justice as Part of the heart and soul of it, and so I was very vocal. That is the only reason why I chose to run for student body president was to be a person of color in an infrastructure like that where I could actually have real influence and that 's what I did. My yeah. overall experience of the faculty and staff overall was was good. There were definitely challenges. Um, the greater challenges were with students, more so than faculty for sure, mm. um, in terms of me being a woman, being a leader, being a woman who preaches. Um, and then being a brown woman on top of that. So in in many classes, I was not only the only woman, but I was oftentimes the only brown person as well which yeah. is why I'm now at Howard. Hello. Yes. <laughs> yes. I
0: can see that you finally feel like home and you yes. can breathe. I'm sure. Yes. So yes. after that experience, tell me what led you to spend 10 years in Africa. Cause I have no idea this part of your story, how you end up for yeah. 10 years in
1: Africa. And so, so, yeah. So, um, I, the first few years of seminary, I was dead set the moment I, like I was kind of, um, holding out until I could go back to Oakland. I, my plan was to be full-time, long-term, back in East Oakland doing okay. ministry. Okay. Um, and then I ended up declaring my emphasis to be intercultural ministry. It was the closest okay. thing they had to anything yeah. justice or <laughs> okay. um, yeah. diversity-related. Right. So, so I, I declared my emphasis and I was informed that one of the requirements is you have to go overseas for part of a year okay. and do a full-time internship. Okay. And at the time, I don't know if it's the same now, but at the time... You could choose. They had a few sites that they already had connections with. So you could choose one of those or you could choose to go somewhere else as long as you meet the requirements for the full time internship. And so for me, immediately, it was like a like a two minute decision making process in my mind. It was either Brazil or it was South Africa, because what I didn't mention is when I was 12 and I saw Mandela released. Right. I was introduced to apartheid. From then on, I was so shocked and disturbed and fascinated in a disturbing way by learning of apartheid that I began to follow South Africa all okay. the way through junior high, high school, college, early seminary. I was like literally growing up with democracy. Okay. I was growing up with south africa 's democracy i was I, I watched some of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, I mean I, I not watched. I uh, listened and read um as mandela was was uh, elected and then the trc happened the truth and reconciliation happened um and then eventually tabo mbeki was elected i was following all this as yeah. i was growing up right yeah so in that moment in seminary it was either brazil because that's my heritage or it was south africa because i felt like a part of my soul was already there mm. and because i had been to brazil already several times um it just took all of 2 minutes to say i'm going to south africa south africa yeah okay i, I didn't know a soul there Initially, it was it was a few months. Um, I was doing an full time internship for um, the the SACC South African Council of Churches, which during the struggle against apartheid, starting in the 50s, was probably the leading organization that that was a leading organizing group that Really paved the way for the victory okay. over apartheid. Desmond okay. Tutu was was once their director, um, and it was it was bombed in the 50s. That's how significant their work was. Okay. Um, so I worked in their national office in the Justice Truth and Reconciliation Department. It was life changing. So I was in Johannesburg, um, oh, wow. and my direct supervisor in the Justice Truth and Reconciliation Department, Luke Pato, he used to be. I didn't know this until a month after I got there, but he used to be. Um, Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu's right-hand man in the height of the struggle through the eighties and nineties wow. against wow. apartheid. He was my direct supervisor. And when I, he, te- I mean, I learned, Oh my
0: gosh, more than you did in all of seminary, I'm sure. Yes. Was- so a huge, significant part of your story being there is the color of your skin Mm-hmm. And how you were looked at and accepted, like you said, you'd never, you didn't know anybody there, you hadn't been there before. Which I've been to Uganda, and I know that it is just like, oh my goodness, I so don't fit in here. And but you probably underestimated, I'm guessing, how much you, how little you would fit in, right? So tell me about that experience when they saw you, what they thought, and
1: yeah. So my initial internship was in the city of Johannesburg, but that work took me into Soweto, which is the largest township in South Africa. Okay. And during apartheid, um, Black South Africans were forcibly removed from cities and suburbs um, and forced into residential areas that the government created outside the cities on the worst land um, and, and governed by horrific laws to keep them very poor and to keep them cheap labor for the cities. So that's a history of, of townships. They're exclusively Black, almost without fail. Um, and so I fell in love with Soweto. Not Johannesburg, Soweto. I felt like I, in some sense, I came home when I was introduced to Soweto during those months. And so before I left um, during that trip, um, I, I really felt clearly that the Lord was leading me to relocate and stay in Soweto. So okay. I returned to the U.S. just long enough to do my oral exam. And then I relocated permanently to Soweto. Okay. So Soweto is the largest township in South Africa. It's five, they estimate five million people, um, 100% of whom are racialized as black, by definition of a township. What I did not realize until I relocated there to stay was that in Soweto, I was racialized as white. So, so the continent of Africa does not rub up against Latino America, the way that the United States does, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're neighboring with Mexico and right. South America. That, that's not the case in South Africa in particular. So there isn't a framework to understand Latinos. Right. right. So um, the Afrikaners in South Africa are the white folks of Dutch descent. Okay. Um, they're between three and 4% of the population. Um, I was assumed to be one of them. And it's the Dutch that it, that created and instilled and upheld the apartheid system. So I was not only regarded as white, because in South Africa, you have the British and the Afrikaners both. Okay. The Afrikaners are the ones who ran up the apartheid system. So I was not just assumed to be white, but I was assumed to be Afrikaner white. Oh, wow. The would very, that be
0: the equivalent of the KKK here, if we're going to try to equivalent, equivalent it to anything, or no?
1: Um, some similarities and some differences, okay. I would say. Um, so the KKK isn't necessarily associated with a particular ethnic right, group. It's right. associated with white. Right. A white um in some ways we tend to associate it with a white extremist group. Mm -hmm. Um, In South Africa, it's a whole ethnic group of people that are identified by their race and ethnicity in particular and history, right? So I would say the impact that it had on the community would be similar to the assumption that I was in the KKK. Yes. Okay,
0: so you nonetheless are put in this, assuming that you are in this group that was responsible for the apartheid and oppression and killing and all of that. So, okay
1: so um the first phrase i learned um, one of the first zulu phrases that i learned was uh, because i i was very committed to living in the community because of what i experienced growing up in east oakland yeah i'm not going to be someone who comes and serves here every saturday but lives in the leafy suburbs and rolls up for the weekend no no Mm -hmm. if i'm going to serve here i'm going to live live here so i lived in the community i intentionally used public transportation which people who look like me really almost never do that. Mm. Um, and so it was in those taxis, those public taxis, they're not like our taxis, that I first learned because I would come in and then there would be all kinds of chatter spoken usually in Zulu. Why in the world is this white person in our taxi, right? Um, but it took yeah. a long time for me to learn enough Zulu to understand. But one of the first phrases I learned was, which means, dude, who is this white person? <laughs> um, almost every time I step foot in a taxi, that's what I would hear. So so coming into the community, for me, it was in some sense a little bit of home because I grew up in a predominantly Black neighborhood community. That part wasn't unfamiliar to me. However, for my brothers and sisters that were now my neighbors, they had never and never imagined that they would ever have a neighbor or a fellow community member who looked like me living among them. Um, And so the journey of trying to build relationship and build trust and build rapport, um, was in some ways it was catastrophic initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's, you...
0: the, it's the flip side of your story. I mean, that's why yes. I think your story is fascinating because it's, it's the opposite of what you had had in the first part of your story. So yes. it was catastrophic. You trying to tell a little bit, of, tell, tell why that was initially.
1: Yeah. And the initial catastrophic, um, of it is that, I thought, so my identity was, wasn't, is very much rooted in being a woman of color, right? That's my life experience. Um, I thought that every time I was referred to as white, if I could explain, actually, I've never been white. I'm not white. My dad's from Brazil. I grew up here and this and this and this. You know, all the assumptions that come with an Afrikaner white person. You grew up with maids. You grew up with servants. You grew up behind Big walls uh, because that's the way houses are in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, none of those assumptions are true. So I thought it will level the playing ground if I can explain yeah. that's not who I am. i grown up a person of color, I've never been white a day in my life. Yeah. What it, it took me two years to realize it took me two years to realize that I was doing far more damage by trying to explain that I'm not white, yeah. thinking yeah. that I was going to build trust, that I was going to build rapport, it was destroying trust. It was sabotaging relationships because in me telling them, no, I'm not white. I'm not what you think. It's just like, um, it's me telling them, you need to see me how I see me and how everyone sees me where I come from. I get to decide for you who I am in your world. Right. And when I read
0: that, I read that part of your story just briefly in your bio and what hit me and hits me again And correct me if I'm wrong, but I see a very much a similarity with white people today trying to tell black people, well, I'm not I'm not prejudiced. I am not I never owned slaves. I'm not a white supremacist like and that's not how you form those relationships and seek justice at all. Like by denying what they are seeing. So I I thought that was just profound part of your story. Here's the
1: irony is that I was, by the time I arrived in South Africa, I was 31 already. I had been doing organizing. I had been doing justice work for decades. So I had already discipled and trained white people to not do what I was doing. (laughs) But it's because I didn't identify myself as white. Right, right, right. So I didn't put myself in the same category. Um, and after two years, I just had a watershed moment with the Lord when I realized, I, for the first time, in speaking in terms of my story in Solato, I saw Jesus in my story. I saw my story in his. So he came and was regarded as something he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. He was regarded as a sinner. Isaiah 53 is where I found myself that day, and it broke me. I mean, it it broke me in the most redemptive and <laughs> systematically, fundamentally, redemptive traumatic way you can imagine Um, because I realized I was trying to demonstrate I'm not like all the other white people that's what I need (sighs) you to see and then you'll trust me no that is not what Jesus did he didn't walk around saying I'm not the sinner you all think I am no he was about his father's business he was about his purpose right so once I saw his story in mine and I realized number one me growing up a person of color and being assumed to be white is part of the whole point of why I'm here. Mm -hmm. It's part of the whole is to be a white person in this community. And from that day forward, I never again felt the need to justify or defend that I'm not white because it was part of the purpose. Then the second thing was also realizing that what that means is in this context, I am now the one with the privilege. I am now the one that is benefiting from this system that is that is seeking to destroy the very people I came here to love and be neighbor to and with. Um, I now have the privilege. I yes, now benefit from yes. this. System. Um, and it changed everything about how I related, how I engaged. My favorite thing, same growing up in East Oakland and ministry in East Oakland, as in Soweto, my favorite thing is just to be on the streets with the people. Like be in the streets with no agenda, be with the people. That's how I learned most of my Zulu. With the people in the streets, especially the kids, <laughs> um, but that that realization changed everything and and with time over the years it it fundamentally challenged my understanding of the gospel itself and especially how it's applied to this idea of reconciliation
0: and how did the people start to accept you differently once you would you stopped trying to justify, yeah, and you just accepted how they saw you? did they start? reacting differently? Did that change their attitude? Did they start accepting you?
1: You know, it was a really, really long process. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took a long time for me to get there to realize that yeah. part of the reason why our relationships were not forming or growing, part of it was the history that I had just walked into, yeah. right? Yeah. But part of it was how I was engaging in the history. So yeah. when, when my whole demeanor changed, it took quite a while for people around me to adjust, quite a yeah. while. And yeah. the reality of the brutality of racialized systems like this is that trauma collective trauma is so deep. It is so deep that for many people relationships could only go to a certain place. There were few who, who number one, even had the desire um, to have deeper relationship than, than surface level. Um, And rightfully so. Right. Rightfully so. Right. Um, but then, you know, there were very few who we could actually traverse the deeper, more difficult, more traumatic. And, and what I now realize, what I now see that I didn't really deeply understand then, even with all of the work I had already done in trauma, was that that intergenerational trauma is living so powerfully in the physical bodies, in the, right. in the cellular makeup inside of our bodies. The emotion is stored in our organs, you know, and the, the subconscious. That people oftentimes didn't even realize why they couldn't stand to be near me or they couldn't stand to have certain conversations. A lot of times yeah. didn't didn't realize um, yeah. sometimes ever or or with the few until way further down the road. you know yeah. And um,
0: I was on that. I started reading last night, my grandmother's hands. Oh, yes. And that fits for, I mean, I recommend that book for everybody and I'm only two chapters in and I'm like that just right there talks about that trauma, like you talked about in our DNA and that, that just explains so much of what you're saying, what, what you experienced and what we see in this country. So side note, highly recommend that book to learn more about what you're talking about
1: with that. Yeah. And this is the reason why, um, I mean, living in Soweto is what woke me up to the collective aspect of trauma. Mm -hmm so the racialized trauma um, i had a sense of from living my own story and suffering physically in my own body um, you know in oakland and then under the watchful eye of the kkk and then and then also being in oakland i mean being in soweto um i i had profound suffering and life-changing joy both all intertwined which which those two are much more acute in the marginalized two-thirds majority world populations that in a sense that we don't really recognize um, in Western, particularly the United States. Um, but the suffering, when it was suffering, it was intense suffering. I, I was physically assaulted more than once. Um, I'm a survivor of police brutality, pretty horrific, racialized police brutality in South Africa. After that incident, there was a resoluteness that I will never call the police for help ever. Not, I will never in this country. And now, mind you, South Africa is is the violent crime capital of the world. It's also the sexual assault capital of the world. So every day, the news was full, infiltrate. Every day, news stories of horrific brutalizing yeah. of women Yeah. living in that context and me realizing I will never call the police for help, which means I'm on my own, which means if I find myself in a life-threatening situation where I get kidnapped and thrown in the trunk of a car, I, I will not be calling the police for yeah. And like you
0: said, it is so, to be a woman and live in South Africa is is detrimental. I mean, it really is. How did you push through 10 years? Did you, was each year questionable of I staying here or you just knew that was where God had planted you and you were to stay?
1: Yeah. You know, the first, um, for nine years, nine of the 10, um, I, I felt that God had been so clear when he called me to relocate there. It was so Undeniable okay. that the Lord's call was to relocate me there. That the question of staying, it was never even an option. Okay. Yeah, which I, I'm in hindsight super thankful. God was very intentional about being that clear because he knew what suffering I would face. Right. Um, and it meant that him being that clear meant that I didn't question whether or not I was meant to be there. It okay. was more of how do I navigate this? You know? Okay. Um, so at
0: what point in your story do you meet and adopt your boys i mean i know the adoption came much later but i know that's part of the story about your time in south africa so tell us how i mean i know that's probably that could be a whole podcast in itself yes. adopting and <laughs> yeah but you didn't go there with the intention of i'm going to adopt that is what just one thing after another led to in your story so do you want to share a little bit about that and how that played out in your story
1: yeah, so from childhood, I always knew that I wanted to have biological kids and adopt. Okay. Since childhood, I always knew that. Okay. Um, part of my work in South Africa was working with vulnerable children. Okay. And within that was working with babies who had been abandoned. That is part of the way that my boys came into my world um, with me working in that field. It was one of many things that I did in the community. And when I met uh, particularly my son, Jericho, I met him when he was six weeks old. Okay. Um And by then, I had already been working with babies and children for years, really, in South Africa. Um, But he was the first one that when I held him, it was like he was pulling this question from my heart. Is this my son? Is this my son? Wait, for months. Um, He had really significant medical challenges. And he just was such a tender, little, sweet, still is soul. Um, And so that was the impetus for me to say, no, I know this one's mine. Okay. Um,
0: so this is a question that's weighed on me a little bit to ask or not ask when I've read and learned about your story. So yeah. I told you if there's questions you're like, that's, you shouldn't ask that or whatever, you tell me. But in my own learning the last couple of years, white saviorism, how, yes. how okay, so you're okay with me asking you this. Yes, so please, okay, you're an open about, yes. So tell me how that differentiates from what you did, maybe differentiate a little bit. Because I know that that is a term that it's like, white people want to go over and adopt these babies from other countries and come in as the saviors. And that's not okay. So tell me, yeah, so just expand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so in short, this is a really short explanation to a huge. Topic. I know we're
0: covering so much. Like we everything are. I ask you, we could <laughs> so be understand. like, so I, we're going to go over in this podcast. I have permission. This is going to be longer than an hour because I'm just trying to get a quick cliff note version of all yeah. of this.
1: Yeah, so really short, short summary would be white saviorism says, says poor, well, speaking of adoption in particular, okay. um, says, poor black or dark-skinned child of savages needs to be rescued, and I am the chosen one who has the power and the rightful power to swoop in and save the poor destitute child. And for one, I've never identified as white, and I lived from the underside. Um, So in one sense, that just wasn't a part of my makeup. However, I would be terribly remiss to not acknowledge, and and even back then I did acknowledge that even as someone coming from the underside, I was still coming from the arguably the most powerful nation in the world. So that by itself breeds a sense of saviorism or can breed a sense of saviorism. Um, So in some ways, um, that national aspect of it was something that um, I did self check-ins, you know, as years went on. And so it's a, what, what are my motives here? And why am I choosing to do this, this, or this? And how am yeah. I going about this? And what's influencing my thinking um, and staying very close to my, my local leaders and the, the people in the community um, who, t- gosh, taught me way more than I could ever hope to teach or bring into the community itself. Sure. What is so different, fundamentally different from white saviorism is my boys are the gift to me. It's not, I'm the gift to them who, who rescued and saved. It's that they are actually the gift to me. And in some ways we're gifts to each other. We're gifts to each other. Part of navigating adoption in a way that is honoring and not stripping the dignity of the child is honoring both the joy and the pain of what adoption is. So the gain of gaining a, you know, quote unquote, forever family, that's our narrative focuses on that. But that gain of a forever family means that a paramount catastrophic loss had to take place first. Yeah. yeah. Um, so holding both of those together um, and knowing that in some ways, th- this is a reciprocal relationship that's happening right. as we grow right. together. It is not me stamping identity on a child. It is not me stamping and really, it's hard to even put in words because it's what I live every day. Right. But um, I am learning from them as they learn from me. And we are literally co-creating a story together. And in that story is their catastrophic loss. Yeah. Yeah. And in our story is also the beautiful creation of a family unit. Both
0: appreciate that. And like you said, that's a short answer, but I think an important one, I mean, especially me as a white woman, other white women listening that are from the church, you know, going on mission trips, like I, told you, I went to Uganda, worked at a, volunteered at a baby's home, friend is adopted from Uganda, but it's all, I've been really examining a lot of that, the work that we do as white, me as a white person going over, and the motives, I think, are so essential to be examining over and over, so.
1: If I can just highlight one more thing. Absolutely. I don't want to, I don't want to leave this topic without saying this. No, go for it. Um, That one of the fundamental ways that we can refuse participation in white saviorism and white supremacy as we adopt or as we move in these spaces is that we recognize and admit our limitations. What is What would have been ideal for my children is not me. What would have been yeah. ideal for my little boys would be to be with their That's right. parents of origin That's right. in their country of origin who look like them, who could teach them about their heritage and the legacy, that ideal was not a possibility. No matter how much I love them, no matter how much I, how much work I do internally, externally, to be able to raise them in a way that honors them and empowers them and gives them voice instead of takes voice away, I have to be able to recognize and admit and act on my own limitations. I will never know what it feels like to be of African descent with darker hue. I will never know what that feels like personally. I will never be particularly a black man in America. Right. So there are certain things that I cannot impart to them. I cannot impart the sense of identity, the racial identity in particular that they need. That, they, right. that, is, a, that is a fundamental need, which means that they have to have people in their lives that we trust that look like them. I am not enough. I am not enough to do this by myself. And for me to think that I would be um, is that's saviorism.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because their story does not end with you being their mom and then learning from you. There's so much more. And if you're not going to be a white savior, you need to expose them to and have teachers and mentors and models in their life that are not People that don't look anything like them, so that's exactly. really good. And I appreciate you answering all of that because I didn't give you, I didn't even tell you I was going to bring that up. I, <laughs> I don't give anybody questions in advance, so it's I'm kind of rolling with the conversation. So I appreciate that. So I'm going to fast yeah. forward a little bit, only for the sake of time. Yeah. I want to know. So two big things before we talk about the Jesus and Justice courts, How has and again a question that you could talk an hour about about, but is particularly this last year, the last four years, raising black. Cool. Boys in this country, how has that completely changed you? When you combine that with the last year, the last four years.
1: well there's there's so many directions I can go with that. I but, know. So you de-
0: de- you decide, yeah. How the you very i
1: fir- I'll, I'll start with the very first one that came into my mind when okay. you just started with the question. The first thing that came into my mind was chronic PTSD. All of the time doesn't ever go away. Their little bodies. Being racialized as Black means that they're merely a number. They are subhuman. They are viewed as savage. And statistically in this nation, the United States, the statistics say that for Black boys, they go from being seen as a child to seen as an adult at 10 years old. One of my boys turned 10 last week. So it's chronic, it's chronic PTSD and it is chronic constant hypervigilance in terms of One of my most important responsibilities in their lives is to prepare them to face this world that they're growing up in. Um, And again, here's where it is so critical to be able to say, I have limitations because I don't look like them. My experience will not be like theirs, but it is my job to do the very best I can to prepare them. And to make sure we have people in our intimate circles that do look like them, yeah. and things, things like, there's so much I could say. I know there's
0: a lot. This is that was a very that's a lot of a question to throw at you. So I think that we don't. You don't have to even say any more than that. I think that a simple answer, but says so much that that you as their mom are living with that. So imagine. What these black bodies are living with.
1: That's right. And there is a significant distinction, right? So I am a mom of black boys. However, my voice is more likely to be heard about the pain of being a mom of black boys than all of my sisters who are black moms of black boys. That's right. And who their own body is threatened just like their sons are threatened or their daughters' bodies are threatened. My body is not racialized. It is racialized, but it's not racialized in the same way, not with the same brutality that theirs is. And, you know, all these videos of so many horrific deaths and lynchings of Black bodies in our nation. It used to be, so we've been home from South Africa for three years. It used to be that in my activism and in my writing, I would watch these videos as a way to stand as a witness and and honor someone's last breaths right not not to be a peddler of black atrocities but actually to stand in honor but i'll tell you that changed with george floyd i could not i mean two seconds of the video came up and i i just felt like i couldn't breathe physically i couldn't breathe Um, and it was the combination of not just i have two black boys who are only a few years from being that size and looking just like him um and his utter Helplessness in the sense of he did nothing wrong. He was not fighting. He was not armed. He was handcuffed. And I have boys that look just like him, but it's not just my boys. I have people in my world that I love more than anyone on the planet, other than my children, who are family to me that look just like him, men and women, my people that are like my aunties, my grandmothers, my mothers, my daughters, my nieces that I see in them. And that is part of the absolute destruction that comes with the divide of segregation. People don't look at George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, any of these folks, and see the people they love the most. Right, right. That's part of it.
0: What else I want to ask you, I want to keep going with that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on to the last thing I wanted to bring up um, yeah. that I think what we're talking about is a segue. So I saw your last IG video on agency. Just looking at You even asking this question and you talking about the PTSD, like I visibly sense like your body, your body is tired and your body is stressed. And Mm -hmm. that pales in comparison to darker brothers and sisters that are visibly, you know, having to live every day. So they're tired. They're really tired and worn out and exhausted. Mm -hmm. And in that little bit that you shared on IG video, you talked about that. And as white people, we need to step up. And I guess just talk a little bit about that. If you want to share that story, you can. I mean, I watched that twice today because I'm like, that, that was a sermon. I mean, mm. beyond a sermon, it was. you talked about a defining, changing point in your time in Africa, the five yeah. years yep. in, and you talked about agency, and it was just very powerful. So I think that is something that leads leads into talking about your Jesus and Justice course. But
1: yeah.
0: so share as much of that as you want for the white listeners and for the women of color listening like take a yes. break breathe rest yes. that's resistance too
1: yes yeah so um one major there were many tragedies living in that context um the biggest one that literally divided my decade there in before and after was um my my closest friend the only person that was really like family like genuinely like family to me um my sister her name is Sinazo. um she died in a terrible very tragic drowning accident Um, and another friend of mine also died trying to save her Um, and there were a group of seven of us seven friends I wasn't there seven friends who had traveled to Mozambique which is the the country that borders South Africa on the north Um, it's a coastal country um, just for a one week getaway over New Year's Um, and on the second day that they were there um, she got swept out and in the ocean and he went to try, hope. his name was Hope, to try and save her, and they both drowned. Um, and being as close to her as I was, um, both as a sister and friend, as well as we served in ministry together, I was the first person that they called um, when when she was pronounced dead. Um, and that turned into three days of uh, delivering the news to her family and her close friends um, and our the ministry that we were serving together in. Um, as well as three days of trying to get their bodies back, <clears throat> trying desperately to get their bodies back. Um, and the the significance of that is something that is almost impossible for us to understand as Americans because of the connection of African communities to their land. It is sacred. So not having the body of a loved one to place in their land, their own land w- was to completely devastating. It would cause the acute trauma to never move out of the acuteness of it. Um, And the Mozambican authorities kept saying, we're not releasing their bodies, we're burying them here. We're burying them here in land that is foreign to them. Um, So after three days of trying and trying to get the Mozambican authorities to release them, um, there was a group of us, probably I would say nine or 10 of us that were trying to find ways to make this happen. And at the end of the third day, there was this righteous indignation that I felt so angry and it was like, it was like a refusal to accept. I will not accept this. Their families cannot continue to suffer. No, wait a second. They won't release them. Then we will go get them. We can get in a car and we can drive 18 hours. We will go get them and we will do whatever we have to do in person and bring them home. The anniversary of their deaths just passed um, a couple weeks ago. And as I reflected and remembered and gave honor, um, I was really reflecting deeply about this. Why is it that among the 10-ish of us, um, all of whom, almost all of whom were um, Black South Africans, extraordinary Black South Africans, I was the one who had the wherewithal in that moment to say, wait a second, we're not helpless here. No, let's go get them. There is absolutely no way that 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 is anything that would that could be credited to me having any special kind of courage that they don't. It has nothing to do with that. My conclusion is that the biggest reason why I had the wherewithal to say, no, 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 we don't have to accept this. We are going to get them. And that's exactly what we did. We drove 18 hours, myself and um, a family member of each of them and then a a close friend. and we brought them home to their families. But that that is not because there is anything about me that is more courageous or more heroic, Or it's actually quite the opposite. I think what the reality is, is that is a reflection of um, one primary dynamic player in what creates racial trauma and what perpetuates white complicity, and that is agency. So racialized systems that are grounded in hierarchy they seek to strip people on the bottom of their agency. And agency is is this sense that we have the power to influence. We can bring change. We can do something about what's happening. Um, And what the system does over and over and over in very tiny, 15 drops a day ways, and then in monumental, very traumatic ways, is strip us of our sense that we can bring change. And so even though I have lived a lifetime in the U.S. as a woman of color, so I've been marginalized as a woman and I've been marginalized as a person of color, it will never be in the same ways, the same kind of brutality that people of African descent who are overtly racialized as black have endured. Right. So there was enough of my agency intact for me to feel in that moment, we can do something about this. Whereas it might be that the others of us who have experienced and endured a level of suffering that I will never know, not just in their lives, but for generations Mm -hmm. in their immediate communities, in their immediate families. Is it possible that that sense of agency and submission to the system in order to survive required that pieces of that agency had to die in order to survive? Yeah. And, I am reminded of that in this week, post-January 6th, post-attempted coup, post-insurrection, that so much of what I keep hearing are these Christian niceties around, um, you know, the church is perfect, but the people never will be, and hate the sin, but love the sinner, and Jesus is coming back to rescue us all, and we've just got to hang on. And those things are in the white-bodied Christian community, ways to pacify right. the urgency of pain that says, get up and do something now. That's right. That's it is right. my responsibility, speaking the proverbial my as, as a white-bodied person, which I'm not, but using inclusive language, we have a responsibility I choose to sit with this pain and not stick a pacifier in it because right. it is my responsibility right now as a right. member of the community of power to do something about it. That is agency. Right. Don't let empire tell you that you shouldn't have to stand up with your agency and bring change. That's right. And that empire right. is just as much embedded in Christian systems as it is in national ones. Right. And then for my brothers and sisters of color, part of how, huge part, of how we revive that agency that was that is our birthright. Genesis one, we were given the charge to exercise dominion. That is leadership. That is governance. Yes. That means you are called to it and you have the capacity for it, both. Part of reviving that agency is healing the trauma. Mm-hmm. Healing is resistance. Yeah. Healing is activism healing is a form of agency and the heart of those two dynamics between the white embodied community with the power and the bipoc embodied community with the trauma is part of how how jesus and justice course came about is that on some level we all need to understand and be introduced to jesus of nazareth the one who was born into poverty in a small, poverty-ridden, rural agricultural town, Jesus of Nazareth, into a faith that doesn't have white supremacy embedded in it. We do we don't know what that looks like. None of us. No, we don't. We mm. white-bodied community and community of color, we all right. have to be stripped um, of the embeddedness of white supremacy. Um, and so in Jesus and Justice, we learn for like a systematic theology of the call of the gospel and scripture um, from the God of justice, that to be his image on earth is to be people who seek justice and seek the well-being of seeking the well-being of our neighbors is seeking justice. And then it's also doing the identity work that which is where the trauma work comes in. So um, all of us in a racialized system, whether white or of color, our sense of identity has been deeply distorted. Yeah. Yeah. Deeply distorted in order for the system to continue to be able to function. We all have had to buy into where the system says we belong in the hierarchy. No, I just
0: okay. wanted to say you're talking about the Jesus and justice class so I want to our course so I want to interject yeah. a little bit that this is the course that you have offered many times before and you're starting yep. a new session next next week is that right mm-hmm. in the next okay. weeks. yeah okay mm-hmm. so if people want to learn about this class get more information on it um, they can contact you they can find it on your website all of that is that right
1: Yeah, so you can go to GigiOnline.org. That's G-I-G-I online.org. There's lots of information on there. You can go to the most comprehensive information, GigiOnline.org slash Jesus and Justice course. Okay, and
0: there are a lot of details. I mean, you, I have not done the course, but that's originally why I talked to you because I was very interested in it. And I mean, you are doing everything to make it a safe space for... BIPOC because it is there are less spaces for white people very safe space for whoever wants to join it it's for white people and black people for people of color everybody but it's a safe space for sure
1: and even though so we all have a seat at the table for change all of us however in order to keep it safe it means that women of color have to be the majority in number and their voice has to be centered Right. So that is how part of how we keep it a very safe space.
0: Okay. And it's offered, you have a daytime course, an evening course. Yep. You don't have a lot of spots. They're they're limited in what you have left. So you just have a few yes. to fill.
1: Yes, there's a few to fill. Um, I, because we do deeper work, identity work, mm-hmm. trauma work, that I don't allow the group to get larger than 12.
0: Yeah, you do a lot of deep work. So if somebody is really interested, they need to contact you and you yep. will get details about specifics with costs and meetings and all of that. And the other yes. thing that you offer, I want to keep talking to you, but we have to wrap up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've taken a lot of your time um, is a book club that you offer also on Thursday. So tell us yeah. about this one. Last week was the first week of the new session. So just briefly yes. tell us, and it's the book that I mentioned. So just briefly tell us about that and same place folks go to get the information on that.
1: Yeah, so we call it the Jesus and Justice Book Tribe. It's totally free um, and it started soon after the pandemic, um, just as a way to make sure that when we come out of quarantine, we come out different, we come out healed, we come out more empowered and more mobilized. Um, And so we go through books on justice, all of them before this one have been faith-based, but it's also a very safe space that we learn together, grow together, challenge each other, um, and in some ways heal each other. um, on issues around justice. And right now, just last week, we started with chapter one of My Grandmother's Hands, which um, in my opinion, so my, my specialty, my focus really um, in school and in ministry is around healing intergenerational collective racial trauma. This book, um, My Grandmother's Hands, my opinion is probably the best in the field. I topic. believe it.
0: Like I told yeah. you, I just got it. Cause I'm like very curious. I've heard of it and two chapters in, I'm just really blown away. Yes. So it is an yes. important and necessary book to read whether or not you're doing the book club, um, Yes. for sure. And so anybody can join that book club, but they yep. also need to contact you for the zoom link and all yeah.
1: of that. Yeah. So they can find me on Facebook, Gigi Kanyezi, Instagram, Jesus and justice, email, reach out, at ggonline.org. Okay. Okay.
0: Gigi, this has been a heavy conversation. I'm sorry <laughs> if I threw some hard questions at you that maybe you weren't expecting because I no, feel like, th-
1: but this is what needs to happen. These are the okay. conversations that need to happen for sure. Okay. So I thank you. Oh,
0: absolutely. Thank you. And I'm going to end on a really light note. I'm trying to remember to ask guests this because it is such a hard, dark time this last year and seemingly now entering 2021 is not going to give us any break. Tell me what's bringing you joy right now.
1: Oh, it's bringing me joy. First of all, joy is resistance. Good. Laughter good. Resistance. I need to. Rem-
0: I need to remember that. That
1: is good. Okay. Laughter is resistance. I know that when I stop laughing, I'm struggling. So I go find Trevor Noah, and I have a da- date with Trevor Noah. Okay. Um, Perfect. So that's a great place to start. So Trevor Noah is one bringing me joy. Um, okay. My boys' laughter is bringing I'm me sure. great joy. I am sure. Yes. Um, and our house is. Um, it's. It's kind of like living sometimes musical theater constantly um we dance and sing and blast music and um sometimes that's the best way to get trauma and stress out of the body. i love that all right we'll end on that note thank you so much Gigi. thank you so much for having me